Our theme together is uh, the centrality of God in your heart and the centrality of God in your thinking and the centrality of God in your preaching. So those are our, our three times together and I, I pray that God would make himself central in your life. I have an assumption now in this first talk, and let me tell you what the assumption is and then try to warrant it for a moment. It goes like this, a pastor's heart, a pastor's mind, a pastor's preaching will not be God-centered unless God is the center of his joy. Your heart won't be God-centered, your thinking and mind won't be God-centered, and your preaching won't be God-centered unless God is the center of your joy. Let me read you a verse from Psalm 43, verse 4. I will go to the altar of God... To God, my exceeding joy. Now, there's a really unusual Hebrew phrase behind that. My exceeding joy is uh, literally two words. Simhat gili. The gladness of my joy. I will go to God. The gladness of my joy. That's very strange. I take it to mean that in all of our joy, God must be our joy. There are many things we rejoice in that are not God, and that's incredibly dangerous, and He's given them to us. Family, beautiful sunrises, church, ministry, food. I think we're idolaters if we don't have God at the center of that joy. I will go to the altar of God, to God, the gladness of my joy. The heart of my joy, the essence of my joy, the joy of all my joys, I will go to God. So, I only mention that verse to illustrate what I mean by the phrase, center of your joy. Your heart won't be God-centered, your thinking won't be God-centered, your preaching won't be God-centered, unless... God is the center of your joy, the joy of your joy, the gladness of your joy. Permeating all your joys is joy in God. You should be radically God-besotted people. And in that way, then your heart would be God-centered and your 
thinking will be God-centered and your preaching will be God-centered. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's Psalm 73. Or Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The only way I can make sense out of a sentence like that is that in all the good I have that is not God, God is the center of that good. Otherwise, I, I just can't make any sense out of a verse like Psalm 16, 2 at all. I have no good apart from you. So, my assumption then is, and I've just tried to give it a warrant, my assumption is that in, in these three messages, God cannot be, will not be, the center of your heart, the center of your thinking, or the center of your preaching, if he's not the center of your joy. Now that's a huge, huge claim. Because if that's true, then your agenda in ministry must be the cultivation of that joy. That must be a passion for you. Joy cannot be for you icing on the cake of your pastoral life. Maybe it comes, maybe it doesn't. It's nice when it's there. It's sad when it's not. It doesn't really matter. What matters is duty, devotion to the task, getting the preaching done, the visiting done, the counseling done with obedience to the raw commands of the Bible. If, if that's life for you, you will not have a God-centered heart, a God-centered mind, or a God-centered preaching. So that's my assumption. And the implication of it is that you, therefore, must pursue your joy in God, or the other way to say it, pursue Him at the center of your joy. So He's the gladness of all your joy. Now, before I make a case for how utterly crucial that is in, in the pastoral life of your heart, let me give you two other reasons why that's so crucial. One is that it is the way that you glorify God. And I'm just going to read here a text from Jonathan Edwards, my most important dead teacher outside the Bible. This quotation from his book, The End for Which God Created the World, is probably, be careful here, outside the Bible, the most important paragraph I have ever read in any book. That may not be true, but I think it is. I, I can't remember all the paragraphs I've read, so I don't, I don't know if that's true, but I think it is. God is glorified within himself, within himself in two ways. By appearing to himself in his own perfect idea of himself, or, that is, in his Son, 
who is the brightness of his glory. Two, by enjoying and delighting in himself, by flowing forth in infinite love and delight toward himself, or, that is, in his Holy Spirit. So, also, God glorifies himself toward the creatures in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. Two, by communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in him and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. God is glorified not only in his being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. That was a sentence that changed my life. I'll read it again. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. It's the greatest mind that America has ever produced saying that God is glorified when you're happy in him. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both the understanding and the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory. And that it might be received by the mind and heart. He that testifies his idea of God's glory does not glorify God so much as he that testifies also of his delight in it. That is absolutely life-changing, if you believe that. Because you all know, you're preachers, you all know that the Bible commands that we glorify God. My daddy said it every week of my life. Son, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God, son. I knew that, but my daddy never told me. I've had to tell him, God is most glorified in you, son, when you're most satisfied in him. Therefore, if you want to make much of God, pursue your happiness if it costs you your right arm. If you have to gouge out your eye, son, get happy in God. He never said that. He was a very happy man, and he knew it in his heart, but he never put it into words. I had to go to Jonathan Edwards to see it put in massive theological form that you cannot honor God as he would be honored if he is not the joy of your joy. How many people don't know that in your churches? They feel like the main way you glorify God is keeping your nose clean. It's doing the stuff. Gutting it out. Don't, don't, don't. We got ten of those, right? So 
Oh, oh, for churches where everyone knows in the core of their being that God is the kind of God who has set up a universe in which His glory shines most brightly when His people, through suffering, are satisfied in Him. That's a good deal. God totally glorified, me totally satisfied forever. What a deal. What a universe. So that's the first reason. It really matters. This is not optional. That you pursue your joy with God at the center of all your joys. Number two reason, I'm not sure you can be saved if this is not true of you. This is risky. Give you a couple of texts, three maybe, why I think that. And it's important that pastors be saved. Because there are many in my town who are not. And it breaks the heart of 10,000 parents when their kids go to their churches. Jesus said, Matthew 13, 44, The kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field and covered it over and from his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. End of parable. It's a one-verse parable. That's a description of conversion. There are other weird interpretations given to that verse. Don't go there. This is pretty straightforward. The arrival of King Jesus in a life is like discovering $10 million in a bucket in a field. And you know, given the laws, that if you own the field, you get the bucket. I've got to get this field before anybody else gets this field. Cover it over. And then the phrase that changed everything in the way I understood conversion. Apa karos. From joy, he sold everything he had. Now, some people call that self-denial. It is, in one sense. You sell everything you have, sell your wedding ring, sell the old grandfather's clock, sell the house, sell the computer, sell all the books, all the books, Piper, sell them all. <laughs> sell everything. In fact, Jesus would go further, hate your wife, hate your mother, hate your father to get the kingdom. At any cost, value the kingdom most above everything so that it makes all other relationships look like hate. And buy that kingdom. I think that's a description of conversion. I think it's conversion. I don't think it's second stage Christianity. I think to be saved now, uh, is to have your eyes open to the value of Jesus. 
Here's, here's the text that says that more clearly from the Apostle Paul. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from getting saved. Now, that's not what it says. That's what it means. So here's what it says. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. People get saved, that's verse 4, when the light goes on in their heart. When they were once looking at the cross, I remember meeting dozens and dozens of times with my son when he was away from God. And, and just say, can I say it one more time? Sure, go ahead. And now I just say the gospel. I say the cross. He died. He died. How can you turn away from me? And he said, it makes no sense, Daddy. He never got mad at me. He just said, it makes no sense, Daddy. That's blindness. That's Satan and flesh and world until verse 6 happens. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in his heart, my heart, your heart, to give, and then he says the same thing he did in verse 4, we just slightly changed vocabulary, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What does it mean to get saved? It means that the devil is sucked by the by the Lord, and the eyes go open, and the foolishness of the cross becomes wisdom and power. That's what, it, that's what getting saved means. You're, you were looking at him, and he's boring. Why would anybody want to go worship him? And I got a television, for goodness sakes, and I got golf. <laughs> I find that the most boring sport in the world. I haven't played a game of golf for 30 years. I don't have a line out of my budget. And if I did, it would be putt-putt. The light goes on, and you were looking at golf, and you were looking at television, you were looking at money, and you were looking at fishing, and you were looking at booze, and you were looking at girls, and that's life. For goodness sakes, you Christians, you're so boring. And then, suddenly, late at night, light floods the heart, and the cross is majestic. It's the sweetest thing a kid ever heard at age 23, on his face in a van in Pensacola, Florida. So are you saved? Has he become the light which is the joy of all your joys? One other text to, to test whether you're saved or not. Uh, Hebrews eleven six. 
without faith, it is impossible to please God. Four. So I, I presume nobody can get saved without faith. So what is faith? Four. He who would draw near must believe two things. That he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. You don't believe that, feel that, you're not saved. If you think being saved is mainly doing stuff instead of getting rewards, and I would be very careful here because I hate the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, and every time I, I talk about pursuing joy, I know I'm running a huge risk because that's going to be translated in some brains into cool, cool, yes, I just want to be... It's okay to pursue the stuff, and it's just the opposite. The reward is God, Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. That's the reward. Face to face, no longer through a glass dimly. So, to be saved is to believe, and believing is believing that he is, and embracing him as our reward. Now, all that introduction to what I want to say. What I want to say is your pastors, and you must pursue your joy in God, or you cannot be a loving shepherd. That's what I want to say for the rest of our time. You must pursue and succeed in finding, at least to some degree, your joy in God, or you can't be a loving shepherd. Now, a lot of people think that's a contradiction because I'm saying at the front end of that statement, you're perceive, pursuing something for you. And I'm saying at the back end of the statement, that's the only way to be loving. And most people say, it can't be. That, that is the opposite of what 1 Corinthians 13.5 says. Love seeks not its own. You just said you can't be loving unless you seek your own joy all the time. That's exactly what I said and what I mean. So we got we to figure this out. Because I think there are a lot of pastors who, because of that logic, that seeking my own would make me unloving, I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to love the sheep, therefore I shouldn't do this, I won't do this, and it ruins your life. Now, that text in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, we're not going to spend any time there except to say, if you take that to mean that it's a sin to enjoy loving people, you can't make any sense out of the chapter. If it's a sin to pursue your joy in God, that chapter won't make sense. 
Because the argument in the first three verses is, though I give away all my goods and my body be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. What kind of an argument is that? If it's wrong to want profit. The chapter won't work if you take verse 5 to mean it's wrong to pursue your joy in God. What it means is love seeks not its own material gain. It doesn't manipulate people. Love has found a way to be so satisfied in God that we become a means to other people's ends. And that when our love in and our joy in God spills over onto others, it multiplies ours. It's like a a weather front. So here's this big, high-pressure zone filled with joy in God. And here's this low-pressure zone of need in people. And the high-pressure zone starts moving in to this neighborhood. And the low-pressure zone immediately creates wind. Like that. That's called L-O-V-E. Love. And what's flowing is joy. This high-pressure zone has been created by joy in God. It's moving into a low-pressure zone of absent joy, absent lots of stuff. And the effect on high-pressure zone joy in need neighborhood is a draft called love. And here's the beautiful thing. The high-pressure zone doesn't get smaller. It gets bigger. It includes, it embraces my joy in spending myself for my people doesn't go down. It goes up. In fact, I'm going to argue, if it doesn't go up, it ain't love. Okay, that's the thesis. Let's do texts for the rest of our time. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, every, every pastor has a Bible. Got a sword if you're a soldier. Unless it's all in your head, and that'd be great. Chapter 13. For me, as a pastor, this verse has been amazingly powerful. It looks like it is addressed only to the people in the church, but the implication for you is huge. So let's read verse 17 slowly and think about joy and its implications for love. Obey your leaders. That's you, the leaders. And submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That sounds heavy. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that, that groaning, doing it that way, would be of no advantage to you, the people. To you, there's the people. You got it? Let them... The pastors, the leaders, do this with joy and not with groaning. So they're going to keep watch over your souls, guide the church, 
be apt to teach, going to do all of this, not with groaning, but with joy, because, see that ground clause? Because doing it with groaning is disadvantageous for the people. Now you got it? If you say, I don't care if I am disadvantageous for the people, you're not loving. Everybody agree with that? Anybody disagree with that? If you say, I don't care if I am a disadvantage to my people, I don't think you're a loving guy. So if we all agree with that, the implication follows pretty powerfully from this verse that you must pursue your joy in God in ministry. You must. Because this text says, let them do that with joy, not with groaning, because the groaning way of doing it hurts people. I mean, you want to see sick churches? Go to churches where pastors don't like their job. Go to churches where pastors are afraid of joy, afraid to show it, afraid to feel it, don't know what to do with it. It's a foreign element, but boy, they know how to say you must and you ought, you should. So people, it's, just, it's a sick church, maybe big, because there's so many people who, who are afraid of hell and want to go there, that is, to that church, that'll tell them what to do so they don't. <laughs> very sick, very foreign to the gospel, and very sad. So there's my, kind of my lead text for this message that a heart for the centrality of God or the centrality of God in the heart requires that he be central in our joy. That was the assumption at the beginning. And now I'm arguing that he is central in our joy must be pursued in order to be loving shepherds. Because that's what the verse says. If you don't do it that way, you will be a disadvantage to the people. And there are a couple of reasons why you will be, or why if you did it with joy, you wouldn't be. One is, a pastor whose heart is thrilled with God, even when his kid is not walking with the Lord, and the marriage is troubled, and the church is declining, and the giving is small, and the sickness is real is one of the most powerful testimonies to the value of God in the world. What could show the value of God more than that? But if he goes down with everything else, God must not be sufficient. And that's the message many people get from their pastor. God's not sufficient for my pastor's joy. He certainly wouldn't be for mine because I'm not as good as he is. Oh, you don't want to give that message. You do not want to give that message. So the message of, of satisfaction in God through trouble is a loud, clear witness to this hungry people. God's enough. They need to hear it so bad. They need to see it. They need to feel it. It's got to be embodied in front of them week after week. God's enough. God's great. God's precious. God's valuable. Let goods and kindred go, right? This mortal life also, I've got God. That's what's got to come through. It also is uh, an advantage for the people because 
it releases radical sacrificial love. This is where love comes from, brothers. This is where love comes from. God-exalting love comes from God-exalting joy. All right. Let's go to chapter 10, verse 34. I'm going to stay in Hebrews for a while. I would love to go all over the New Testament, but let's see how far we can get with Hebrews. And then if there's time, we'll go to Jesus. And if there's time, we'll go to Peter. And if there's time, we'll go to Paul. That's what I'd like to do. Oh, my. That won't happen. (laughs) Chapter 10, verse 34. My, My point here is sacrificial love for people comes from joy in God. Chapter 10, maybe start at verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. There's so much for the health, wealth, and prosperity, right? They become Christians and they get in trouble. That's what happens all the time. If you would live a godly life, you will be persecuted. That's a promise. Verse 33. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So sometimes uh, they were in jail and, and you went to visit them in jail and you got in trouble. Verse 34. For you had compassion on the prisoner. You had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully marked this insane sentence as far as America goes. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Or it might mean an official confiscation. The confiscating of your property. Either way, works. Now here's the ground clause for that insane, countercultural, unbelievably wonderful experience of joy in loss, which produced the love going to the prison. Now, before I read the, the ground clause, get the picture. Some of the saints have been thrown in jail. All right? You're not one of them. But if you go visit them, they'll know you are one of them. So what are you going to do? You're going to say, I got kids. I got kids. I got a nice house. I've seen what they do to houses of people in jail. All the windows are broken out and they burn it down. I got a nice house. And I got kids. I don't think I should go visit them. I think I should go underground. Underground. We'll call it underground church. That's not what they do. You had compassion on those in prison, and they did burn your house down, and you sang all the way to the prison. That's what the verse says. Clear as day. That's Christianity. Not American Christianity, by and large, but that's Christianity. And oh, that Phoenix would set the pattern. Of course, this is the hardest place in the world to do that. People come here to get away from that. So what are you going to do with them? Stoke them? Tell them what they want to hear. They're all coming here to get away from that. Now, here comes the way you can do that in the since clause. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. There it is. What's the possession? God. Heaven with God. You knew in your head as you watched them torch your house. I've got a better house. And you sang. That's what it says. They rejoiced. 
they joyfully accepted. I mean, if this weren't in the Bible, I wouldn't say it. I'm in no position to say this. Anybody come here? Yeah, you ever done that, Piper? I'm not talking Piper. I'm talking God. This is God's word, brothers. This is the kind of heart that pastors people with love. You can do the hard thing because you've got a better and lasting possession. They call you at 8 o'clock when you've worked 18 days in a row without a day off, not had one evening at home, and you're playing with your little girl, and it's a suicide situation. In the car, on the way, you say, I've got an eternal rest coming. I've got an eternal rest coming. I had an old German professor when I was in Germany who worked, worked, worked for kingdom purposes. And when people asked him, why work so hard? He said, ich spare den Ruf, den ich spare, uh, get the right here, ich spare die Ruhe für die, um, ich spare den Schlaf für die ewige Ruhe. Anybody German? Ich spare den Schlaf für die ewige Ruhe. I'm saving sleep for the eternal rest. I'm not asking you to kill yourself all the time. Just when love demands it. And the strength to do it will be given by the last part of that verse. You knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Turn to chapter 11, verse 24. I want to show you this theme. This is not an isolated point. The last four chapters of the book of Hebrews are to make this point. This is the radical Christ-on-the-ground point in the world for Hebrews. We think Hebrews is about Melchizedek. It's about radical Christianity laying its life down out of joy in God. Chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, refusing rather to be mistreated. Oh, weird Moses. Choosing to be mistreated... Make sense out of that in America. Choosing to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy... Whoa! You mean it's, he's not going to enjoy? No, no, no. Enjoy the fleeting keyword, Right? Why would anybody choose a 401k or retirement in Phoenix when you could retire in northern Iraq? Why? Moses didn't. The fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered reproach of the Christ wealth, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. What's that look like in Phoenix? Or Minneapolis. Not picking on Phoenix. We're just as bad. I am picking on Phoenix. <laughs> but we're just as bad. So I pick on Minneapolis also. And here's that same ground clause at the end of verse 34. You see it at the end of verse 26? That same ground clause. How could he do this? For he was looking to the reward. That's the ground, brothers. I've got a king. I've got a kingdom. I've got treasures laid up in heaven. I don't need this stuff. I don't need this stuff. I'm going to lay my life down. There's so many nations to be reached. So many people to be reached. So few hours in the day. So short this life. So short. 
And then, face to face with the king, give an account, Piper. Did you waste it? You don't want to... You don't want to take your last 20 years playing. Whether it's golf, fishing, bowling. You don't want to take your last 20 years playing to meet the king. You don't. I promise you, you don't. Chapter 12. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There it is. Third time now. Here's the reward for Jesus. It's in front of him. On the other side of the pain, on the other side of the love, is the reward. It's it's restoration with his Father. It's being surrounded by all the redeemed. And he's looking and it's getting him through. It's getting him through Gethsemane. It's getting him through the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That's the way we do it, brothers. The joy streams back into the present. We feel it, foretaste now. We know it's going to be big, huge, and perfect there. And that there and this here gets us into love. Sacrificing our lives for our people with joy. No self-pity. Pastor that stands up and documents his pain is a bad pastor. I worked this hard and I worked this hard and I worked... And just kind of does it indirectly so as people can... Oh, poor, poor, poor pastor. <laughs> or we do it with our wives. We do it with our wives. And uh, I'm, 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 as, I'm as guilty of this as anybody. I'm a, I'm a little boy who wants a mom. I want a mom at home, right? I like sex, but I want a mom. <laughs> and I want mom to feel sorry for me. And, oh, you've worked so hard. Come here to me. That is the absence of joy in God. Substituting my worship with sex or with acclaim or with approval. Please feel sorry for me, Noel. Finally, chapter 13, verse 13 and 14. Maybe start at verse 12. I'm just showing you the theme. You, pick, you, you do the rest. Preach this to your people. Preach a series on these crazy texts. See if it doesn't turn them upside down. The young people want to hear it anyway. I don't know if retirees do or not. I know some do. Call them finishers. They leave. Verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So there he is doing it for us. Verse 13. Therefore, let's go to him outside the camp and bear reproach, the reproach he endured. Stop there. I'm going to give you that ground clause one more time, but get this. Let's go to the reproach. Not let's go away from the reproach. Like, I get reproach if I go there. I'm not going to go there anymore. (laughs) Bible, Christian, God, we're not of the world. You go toward reproach. You go toward the prison. You go toward the Red Sea. You go toward the cross. And you go outside the camp. And here's the ground clause one more time. Verse 14. For here we have no lasting city. Whether it's Phoenix, Minneapolis, 
but we seek the city that is to come and guess who's the king there? Jesus. And that's why the city is so attractive to us. That's Hebrews. Let's go to Jesus. Matthew chapter 5. I'm illustrating the point, I'm trying to argue for the point from the Bible, not John Piper, that joy in God now and the anticipation of the full joy later in God is the spring from which sacrificial pastoral shepherding flows. That's my argument. I don't have anything new to say, just more texts. So chapter 5, let's do do the, the ending and the beginning and show you how they fit together. Chapter 5, verse 43 of Matthew. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Now that includes enemies in the church, and everybody's got some, okay? Not just enemies outside. Everybody. Anybody who is making life hard for you. Love your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, now just stop there. Now, where's that going to come from? Where's that going to come from? Those two verses don't say. What is the spring of enemy love? So that a person who for year after year after year is making your life hard, they don't ever get it. They say negative things at almost every meeting. They write you crummy notes and almost never affirm. They just make life hard. And then, of course, there's plenty outside the church who don't understand what's going on at all and think you're weird to the extreme. The answer to where it comes from is given in chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, that's the same situation we just had in chapter 5, verse 43 and 44. They're persecuting you. Verse 12. Rejoice. So your response to being hurt is joy, according to Jesus, if you get it. Rejoice and be glad. And here comes that famous ground clause. For your reward is great in heaven. It's where God is, where Jesus is. It's where everything is summed up in him that you've ever longed for. Now, my way of putting these two together is to ask this. Here you have love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And here you have persecution is happening. Rejoice in it. Now, which is harder? To pray for those who persecute you or to rejoice in persecution? This is risky. There's no no trick here. I want a real honest answer. Somebody... Risk it, and I'll tell you that you're wrong if you're wrong. (laughs) Which is harder? Which is harder? Come on. Did everybody see this one? Good. I think so, too. (laughs) I think joy in the midst of being hurt is impossible. Without a miracle, Holy Spirit, cross, forgiveness, and heaven... Therefore, my conclusion is, since this one's harder, this one is done by this one. 
And if this can be done, this can be done. So if you need to love your enemy and pray for your persecutor and you're not doing it very well, the battle should be fought here. Can you rejoice in this church that's making life so hard for you? Can you rejoice? And I don't mean, brothers, please, I don't mean a toe-tipping rejoice in God like there are no tears. I'm talking through tears and sobs. Paul's got this great phrase. We use it at our church all the time because we want this flavor every Sunday. 2 Corinthians 6.10 Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's us. My, my worship, I've got three worship leaders on three campuses and every time I meet with them just about on Monday for half an hour, I say, brothers, we, we didn't quite get it. It's sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That, that's, that's real hard for a worship leader. That's really hard. But I make it hard because out in that audience are mostly miserable but broken people. And if you just stand up there and do the rah-rah thing, they're going to say, this disconnect is so big, those people don't live where I live. But if you move in and out of sorrowful, I mean, there are sorrowful songs and there are high, energetic, powerful songs. And you, there is a way, there is a gift There's a gift of worship leadership that can get this, that can get this. And oh, that we would all have brothers and sisters who could help us as pastors set these tones of sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Nothing, nothing, I think, that's probably an overstatement, maybe bring it down. Almost nothing means more to me than when I hear a mom of a six-year-old who's had seizures for six years and is now no longer developed any beyond one and a half years old. And they walked through so many surgeries and they just took out 40% of his brain hoping it would work. And it didn't work. And she walks up to me after a sermon and says, thank you for holding up the sovereignty of our great God. Nothing, nothing means more to me. There, I said it too strong again. Because I can think of one or two things that would probably mean more to me. Like if, if her sister got saved. But you get what I'm trying to say. To have, to have so spent yourself for a people that they begin to get that God is more valuable than the health of this little baby. And God is more valuable than... My having a normal life without a child like this. God is so valuable and so sufficient and so sovereign. He can take this, sanctify it to my soul, turn it for my children's good, turn it for the nation's good. Wow. I could tell you so many stories of suffering in our church that are sustained by joy and thus produce love. That's our job. That's Jesus making the same point. Um... Maybe it would be okay to go just a tad longer. We just kind of shuffle the schedule around a little bit. I want to give you a witness from Paul. Go to 2 Corinthians. Maybe just one quick verse from Paul, Peter, and then a closing comment. Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Remember what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to argue that pastoral, sacrificial, shepherding love flows from having God at the center of your joy. 2 Corinthians, I think it's in my Bible. There it is. 
chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. We want you to know, brothers, down in, in Corinth, about the grace of God that's been shown among the churches in Macedonia, up, up in the northern part of the peninsula. For in a severe test of affliction, there it is again, boy, it's hard to become a Christian in those days. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, mark that, it's big, affliction rose up and so did joy. For people who think that you can only have joy rising where affliction is going down, they just don't get it. Christianity is the opposite. Affliction goes up and joy goes up. That's what it says. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance, overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty. Wow. So they didn't get prosperous all of a sudden when they became a Christian either. So they got affliction, they got poverty, and these people are as happy as they can be. What in the world? How un-American. Extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now, I call that love. In fact, Paul calls it love down in verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also, your love also. So, love is what in verse 2? Come up in your own head with a definition of love on the basis of verse 2. In a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy, now that joy came from the grace of verse 1. The grace of God was shown. So God is the ground of this joy. The abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have, like a high-pressure zone, this is where I got this image, by the way, like a high-pressure zone overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And this generosity, of course, going to the poor in Jerusalem. That's what the point is. They're taking up an offering. And it's overflowing. So if joy in grace is overflowing in generosity, where does love come from? It's not rocket science. Love comes from joy in grace. Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. That's my definition of love based on verse 2. There are other ways to define it, legitimate ways. But here, since Paul calls it love in verse 8, I'm going to define love as love is grace comes down, God is manifested, lights go on, glory is seen, joy rises, generosity flows. That's love. And that's the way I want to minister to my people. Therefore, brothers, my main battle is joy in Him, not writing books, not preaching sermons, not going to conferences, not having a happy family that works. My main battle is keeping God as my treasure. Peter, chapter 5, 1 Peter, take another three minutes maybe, 1 Peter Chapter 5, if I had stayed in 2 Corinthians, I would have gone down to chapter 9, verse 7, where it says, God loves a cheerful giver, which I would paraphrase, God loves a cheerful pastor, because he's mainly giving all the time, and he doesn't like, he says, you know, don't give begrudgingly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. That, That applies to the pulpit. But now Peter says it better than I do, so let's read Peter. Chapter 5, verse... Uh... Start at verse 2. 
Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Now, that's just like 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Not under compulsion, but willingly want to do this, want to do this as God would have you, not for shameful gain. Don't make your money at this. If, if you're just doing this for a living, get out of the job. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Eagerly? That's the same as saying God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful pastor. Do this eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but setting examples. Examples of what? Eager love and sacrifice through whatever pain, because I have found as one of your shepherds that my over-shepherd always leads me in green pastures. I mean, do you believe the first verse of Psalm 23? We, we still translate it with the old English usage of the verb want. And almost nobody means want by what they meant by want in the 1600s. It meant lack. And the word is lack. The Lord is my shepherd. I have no lack. Got cancer. Kids not following Jesus. Budget's two million behind. And I have no lack. Why? How could you say that? God. God. One last verse. 2 Corinthians one twenty four. Just to show you, brothers, how what I've tried to help you see, you must help your people see. Because Paul said that was his apostolic charge in verse 24 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Amazing verse, wonderful, precious, pastoral verse. Not that we lord it over your faith, say that to your flock, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. Brothers, you cannot... Fulfill that apostolic pattern if he's not the gladness of your joy. So, in a half an hour or so, we will tackle the mind. We've been working on the heart. We'll tackle the mind, and the way the mind works is to feed the fires of this joy. We'll talk about that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've given us hearts. You mean to be glorified by the way we feel about you. And you've given us heads. And you mean to be glorified by the way we think about you and all things. And how that thinking puts kindling on the fire of the joy. So God, please, please come in this day. We're not gathered here to play games. We're not gathered here to just find out information. We are gathered here to figure out how to do what you call us to do till the day we drop. We just want to be good shepherds. We want to bless our people. We want to be an advantage to them.
We don't want to get in the way of their pilgrimage to heaven, but help them on their way with rejoicing through the slew of despond where most of them live so much of the time, including ourselves too often. So God, have mercy on us. And in this break, stir us up, I pray, with what we have heard. If I've said anything imbalanced or out of step with Scripture, cancel it, I pray, and confirm whatever has been so, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.